Welcome to the Pet Industry Podcast, connecting you with the people behind the passion, the leading experts in the pet industry. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Sprinkle. And I'm your other host, Dr. Mary Cope. Why did the chicken cross the road? It may be to get to the pet store. You may have noticed some new exciting products on pet store shelves. Intermingled with dog and cat products are goodies marketed for chickens. These traditionally agricultural animals are ruffling some feathers in the pet industry by taking over the backyards and hearts of many pet parents, driving the demand for products designed and formulated specifically for these feathery friends. Today, we are joined by Sean Warner, co-founder and CEO of Grubly Farms, a company focused on offering premium products for poultry. Join us to learn more about this growing area of the pet industry and learn about some of the impeccable innovations focused around improving the lives of backyard poultry. So today we are joined by Sean Warner, who is one of the founders of Grubly, which produces some pretty neat products for chickens and more specifically focused towards people's backyard chickens or poultry in general. So we'll be talking with him today about how poultry is expanding into the pet world. So just to start off, Sean, I saw that you went to school, you went to Georgia Tech, which as a UGA grad, we'll we'll look past our differences, but you went for building construction. And I'd love to know a little bit about how that translates to where you are now, and then also how you got interested and involved with poultry in the first place. Yeah, one, just it is a pleasure. Thank you for the invite uh, to be on the podcast. Very excited to be here. So yes, I did go to Georgia Tech. My sister also went to UGA, so we did have a little uh, sibling rivalry there as well. But really, I've always been passionate about nature and animals. I actually worked as a vet tech throughout all of high school and into college, and I actually considered going to UGA and studying veterinary sciences. Uh, ultimately, I went down what I thought was more of the engineering route at Georgia Tech. I started off as a mechanical engineer. Candidly, I realized a couple years in, I hated all my classes and I thought, what am I doing? So I ended up switching to industrial design. And then within that, I actually jumped to building construction, which was a branch under architecture. And really, I would describe that as a combination of civil engineering and business management. So started to dive into the field. But interestingly enough, there's definitely some useful things that I learned in school that could apply to growing a business. But other than your basic biology and chemistry classes, I did not take entomology classes. I didn't know anything about bugs other than just the higher level interest there. Uh, so when we dove into Grubly Farms, it was really a steep learning curve. I think if anything, what college really teaches you is more of the critical thinking and how to tackle a problem. Uh, and that was really what both Patrick and I applied when we first kicked off Grubly Farms. Would you say that your interest, what you said about being interested in entomology, would you say that your your primary interest is in started in the insect and that's what led you to poultry or did you start in poultry and then focus on the insects? I It was more of the insects that led into poultry, but even on top of that, it was really the sustainability element of the insect industry that attracted both Patrick and I to it. We actually just read our last semester at college, we read a single article about the insect industry and just became fascinated that you can raise such a large quantity of insects in a small footprint, like a square foot, because you can stack their bins vertically. And I believe the original article we read that was published in Inc. Magazine said you could grow the weight of a hog, about 220 pounds worth of protein, 
in one square foot in a 14-day period by raising insects off of food waste diverted from landfills. And again, no prior knowledge, but I said, that sounds incredible. I want to be a part of this newly emerging industry. And that is really where we kicked things off. And it was really through the customer discovery phase that we really found the pet chicken market. And really, that's where the earlier adopters of grub protein came from. Well, and I think the pet industry can re definitely relate to this as well, because insect protein has been part of the conversation and foods for our, do at least our dogs. I don't know if we're quite there for cats yet, <laughs> but I mean, this is, has been part of our conversation and it goes back to that sustainability piece. So again, I, I think a lot of people across the pet industry can definitely relate to that interest and acknowledgement that this is a growing ask from our consumer base. So the, the pet parents of all types of pets, I think, are starting to more and more value that piece being a part of what they purchase. So just to, to say there, again, uh, there's a lot of uh, relationship to that part of it. Um, but I am curious, back to the poultry. Now, did you have poultry growing up or like how new was that for you? It was very new. So I grew up in the suburbs just outside of Atlanta. Never had, I, I did have a handful of dipper pets growing up from dogs to snakes, lizards. I traded a pet scorpion for a while, uh, but never a bird. That said, Patrick's parents did actually have pet chickens. And I will say somewhat of interesting or unfortunate timing that someone noticed a coop in their backyard, reported them to the county. And they actually had to get rid of their birds. And then literally two weeks later, the county passed the approval for pet chickens. Oh. So that was rather unfortunate, but they did have a handful of chickens. They also had a turkey named Bob that would talk to you. Uh, so really, that was the first introduction that we had into the pet chicken industry. But I will say even then, that was back in 2016, 2017. Pet chickens were still very new then. I think at the time it was estimated that one to 2% of US households had pet chickens, where now the most recent data shares like 10 to 12% of US households have pet chickens. So it was still a new concept, but that was really the first introduction we had to him. Yeah, I, I got involved with poultry at a very young age. I think I was three years old when I got my first pet chickens. And I remember all throughout school, I was very involved in 4-H and showing chickens in 4-H. Like I've turkeys, ducks. I've had pet everything poultry related. And it was seen as like a really kind of like a weird hobby to be involved in. And no one really had pet chickens or pet turkeys or pet ducks. And it kind of stood out a little bit because of that. And now I look at everyone who is posting about their pet chickens and how they want to build a coop and they want to get laying hens or they want to have little ducks to waddle around their garden and help with pests. And it's definitely exploded. It's absolutely taken off. At this point now, some of the same people who would chuckle about me having pet chickens are now reaching out to me, you know, on Facebook Messenger asking for chicken advice, which I'm happy to provide. But um, it's just funny to see that that transition of something that was primarily they're a farm animal and it wasn't cool to have chickens. And I feel like it was almost the explosion of wanting to homestead that kind of led people back to it. But it has absolutely taken off. And yeah, the last 10 years, it's really exploded. 
You're a trendsetter. I do think COVID really helped accelerate it, as you said, with people leaning more into the self-reliance aspect that chickens can provide. There was just a huge boom for chickens during that time frame. Now, do you have any chickens yourself at this point? I do not. I have a crazy dog that I think would harass the chickens in their coop. I am trying to get him more familiarized uh, with Patrick's chickens because he also does have some. So I would love to get some in the future. But as of right now, Patrick, my co-founder, is the one with the the chicken coop. And I do want to acknowledge that having a few chickens in your backyard is very different than where chickens came from, which is more of a production animal where they're either raised and fed to either be meat or to get the eggs. And so that lifestyle is very different. So when we're thinking about the chickens in our backyard, there's probably going to be pros and cons, right? You just difference. What are some of the biggest things that people need to understand about having chickens in the backyard? I would say, one, it's make sure that it is legal in the sense that you obviously don't want uh, what happened to uh, Patrick's dad. Uh, Check your uh, county laws, your HOA, if you have that. I do believe it's a couple years old, but there was a report that said of the 150 largest cities in the U.S., 93% of them do have the approval to have pet chickens. So it is pretty widely available, but obviously making sure that uh, it is legal. And I think one of the stipulations, as example, in Atlanta is you can have up to 25 birds as long as the coop is well kept, meaning that there's no odor which again, relatively simple if you set it up properly. And then I believe each chicken needs four square feet of space. It's checking your laws, providing the chickens with spaces, and then really similar to any other kind of more exotic pets on either the reptile or amphibian side, it's just following your typical good practices. If you handle your birds, which again, you're more than fine to, just make sure you wash your hands afterwards. Same with the egg. Chickens can be carriers of salmonella, equivalent to a lot of reptiles. So just making sure to be safe about that. And then I would say the other large one is just predators. Just acknowledge where you are at in the U.S. and what that predator could look like trying to get into your chicken coop. And again, relatively easy to build a predator-proof chicken coop. It's just you have to put in a little more time in the process at the beginning. Because if you do just throw it up there, skunks, raccoons, they're smart animals. They can find a way to get in there. And uh, it's unfortunate, but we do have a lot of our customers that happens to them. And that's actually one of the reasons why they cancel with us is because they lost all their chickens when the, something broke into their coop. Just yeah, keep an eye out as far as what the type of predators in your area could actually look like to make sure to prevent that break-in. I will just two two things to add on to that. One is chicken wire, the wire that's labeled as chicken wire, raccoons can and will fit their hands through that chicken wire to grab your birds. So if you can go for a smaller gauge welded wire, that will prevent raccoons from reaching their little hands through and grabbing your birds and trying to pull them through the wire. And then also, even if your town or city allows you to have birds, they typically have rules for roosters. So when we use the term chicken, Chicken refers to both the males and the females. It's like saying humans. And under the umbrella of chickens, you have hens and roosters. Hens being the females, those are what are going to lay your eggs. And roosters are the ones that will crow. And male turkeys or the toms, they gobble. The the males like to make a lot of noise. And when you're selecting chicks from your local farm store, 
If you are only allowed to have hens where you're located, please be sure that you buy pullets and not straight run. So the pullets have been sexed and they pull all of the female birds out. And pullet is the term for a young hen. And when you buy pullets, you are you should only be getting females. If you buy straight run, that's a mix of males and females. So you have both pullets and cockerels, which will grow up to be hens and roosters. And I always joke that they have the two conveyor belts, one with all of the pullets and one with all the cockerels. And every once in a while, they'll toss a pullet onto the cockerel conveyor belt. And that's what they call straight run because a friend of mine, I think she ordered 100 chicks and it was straight run because she wanted a nice mix of hens and roosters. And she ended up with 99 roosters and one hen. So it's highly unlikely that that will happen, but it is a risk. So if you are only allowed to have hens where you live, please buy pullets and not straight run from your farm, farm store. That is very insightful. <laughs> and I happen to be one of those who the HOA does not allow any type of farming. Well, so I am one of those that we, we just have to enjoy <laughs> from others. But so I, I get that side. But now I'm really curious because you're talking about all sorts of types of we've talked about the different types of poultry. We've talked even just within chickens. You've got all these different types of chickens. There's males or females. Do they need different nutrition? Do we have those types of options? I Again, back to the comparison from the production side. They want them usually fat and highly productive, right? (laughs) That is what they're fed for. But here, we just want our chickens. Yeah, we've got a little bit that we like getting eggs. That's a good thing, even with backyard chickens. But we, if they're being considered pets, we want them around for a while. So, Mary, you had talked about earlier. What what about when a chicken has gotten to the age where they're not laying? Do they need different nutrition? Do we have those types of options, Sean, or, or is there opportunity for growth in this this area? Yeah, there's uh, definitely opportunity for growth as poultry has made that shift from livestock to pet. So uh, you are correct that a, a somewhat of a generalization, but if the animal is laying eggs, uh, it typically will be able to share different types of feed. Uh, we are actually working on an all-flock feed, which is specifically catering toward turkeys, quails, or ducks. So it will have different level of micro and macronutrient levels versus a layer feed that is higher in calcium that the hens need for egg production, which that will differ from if you do have a, a flock of roosters for the person that had 99 of them. Typically, they do not need the same calcium levels that a hen would need. So you would be looking at feeding them a different feed. Uh, but I would say this does come down to, as you said, the health of the bird, where that is really our main focal point when we do look at developing formulas. Uh, it is really what is actually healthy for the bird itself and what will basically produce longevity versus what has been done commercially is more so how do you maximize pr- production or growth over a very short period of time. And that is the opposite approach that we're looking to take. Obviously, the feeds on the market, you can still buy them. But our approach is really, how do we keep this bird living as long as possible while still having a high egg output? But that is not really the focal point. And then as you had said, when a hen does stop laying between the age of three to five, we're actually looking at developing a senior chicken feed. I don't know if there's something like that on the market, 
But again, that is a newer a product that only has come about because of the popularity of pets versus in the livestock industry. An old hen is something that does not really exist. So a lot of opportunities ahead of us. And I think when looking at product development, we really love feedback from our customer base. So if that is something that people are looking for, please always reach out to us. But that is something that we're actively looking at right now. I know I had a hen live to be 14 and she... That she is incredible. Yeah, she she unfortunately did not pass due to natural causes. It was predation. So I'm not sure how much longer she was. You could tell she had some arthritis in her toes and she she was definitely getting up there. But I've had some very long lived birds. So I definitely think that developing a more senior feed would be beneficial. And every once in a while, she'd still pop an egg out. It was not often, but sometimes I guess she'd be feeling extra good and uh she'd still lay lay a little egg but that was a little rhode island red but the other thing this was just something i i saw pop up on one of the poultry facebook pages that i'm a member of which sean you might find this interesting the thing that colors yolks are carotenoids and more specifically xanthophils which are a type of carotenoid and carotenoids are pigments which are present in a lot of food products so like dark leafy greens Carotenoids are what color most flowers, like the red-orange colors in flowers. It's the yellow in corn. And that's what colors yolks and makes yolks yellow, is the chickens will eat the feed that typically has corn or marigold in it. And they'll use those carotenoids to put the the pigmentation in their yolk. And this is a lot of times why free-range eggs have that deep, dark, orangey color is because the birds are allowed to eat a lot of dark, leafy greens, so they have more carotenoids to deposit in into those yolks but i have white leg foreign exhibition show poultry and someone was feeding their roosters layer feed which is pretty high in carotenoids because people want those dark yolks and obviously roosters don't lay eggs so he had nowhere to deposit all of those carotenoids and they typically deposit them in their skin so you'll see it in their their legs in their beak but then White leghorns have these big white earlobes and his earlobes had actually turned yellow because his body had nowhere to put all of that pigment. And so it was essentially staining his little earlobes yellow. So that just highlights the hen seed that we formulate is to give proper nutrition to an animal that is having constant output. Uh, they Hens mobilize 10% of the calcium in their body to form an egg shell every time they lay an egg. They need an incredible amount of excess energy, excess calcium, excess carotenoids. And your older birds, your roosters, even some of the poultry species who are less productive, like turkeys are not going to be as prolific of egg layers as as most of our chickens. They don't need a lot of those nutrients in excess like the the laying hens do. That is Super interesting. I actually did not know that about roosters and that they store it in their or can store it in their skin. I I would be curious as far as if there's any other health parameters around that. And more so in the sense that I do know there's you know show chickens that you can have. I would be curious. Hopefully there's no negative connotation to that. But if that trend, you know, it's like you could almost design your bird in a sense around giving it certain types of feed. But again, I would only want that if there are actually no additional negative health benefits to the rooster itself. But that is super interesting. Yeah, the the carotenoid content really shouldn't have much of an impact on health. But I would love to see almost like, so 
the earlobe is actually super interesting because on chickens, if the if the bird has a white earlobe, they'll lay white eggs. And if they have a, a red earlobe, they're going to lay brown eggs. And the only exception would be your, your Easter eggers, which lay the blue, green, olive colored eggs. Um, but for the birds with those white earlobes and some of the more like exotic, like the white face, black Spanish, to have a feed that is lower in carotenoids. So using things like wheat and oats instead of corn would be really beneficial, especially for the roosters who aren't using any any of those pigments. Just another yet another area um, in the poultry space that could use some innovation. So. No, that's, uh, again, super interesting and definitely something that we'll look into. Curious, Sean, because, again, for someone who has backyard birds, they probably are expecting or wanting certain things, right? So when you, and you, you talked about really appreciating feedback from, for, from customers. So what do you hear from customers on what their priorities are? We mentioned a little bit about sustainability, but... Anything that you hear from customers on and what they're looking for? And production is still one of the number one reasons that people will get pet chickens. You know, it's going back to the whole self-reliance thing. So they, a lot of customers do want, I guess, what would be considered healthy eggs that they, you know, feed to their friends and family, but also healthy chickens. Really looking for those higher quality ingredients that in turn produce those higher quality eggs with the thicker eggshells, richer yolks is really one of the main focal points that pet chicken owners have. As far as the sustainability side of things, what we have found is that there's an entire sustainability element around the the grub and the insect and it being raised off food waste. It really does resonate with people, but it is not the deciding factor as far as why someone would choose a product. And I think that is a general scope across a lot of consumer products. And it really does come down to the health of the bird is the number one factor. I think the sustainability can help retain a customer and it can help them get over that hump. But if a product is highly sustainable, but not actually beneficial to the health of the bird, I think it's meaningless. So it really does come down to how do we develop a a product that is in fact healthy for these birds that does promote longevity, can't can't pronounce that right now, that does uh, basically promote a, a longer living bird. And then the sustainability element is just the icing on the cake. Well, and I think there's a really great story around the use of insect protein for chicken feed as well, because or any poultry feed. I mean, we're we're focusing primarily on chickens just because that's what we're seeing the most of for for people getting when they're they're getting backyard poultry, they're most likely getting chickens. But we're seeing increases of people getting. I mean, chicken is chickens are like the uh, the intro to the poultry world, right? So you start with like, oh, we'll just get a few little chickens so we can have some fresh eggs, and then before you know it. You have quail and turkey and duck and geese and everything else. So, but I think that the insect protein has a really good story behind it as well, because when people think of what are birds naturally going to be eating, if a chicken's out pecking around in the grass, what are they going to be naturally scratching up and consuming? And it's going to be bugs and grubs and and everything else compared to some of the other protein sources you, you see used in commercial like layer or broiler feeds. So I, I think that the the insect protein also probably makes sense to a lot of people if that's what my birds would be naturally eating anyway. And I can provide that to them year round, especially for those of us who live in snowy climates. Yep, exactly. And 
that's exactly really how we found the pet chicken market. It was really looking at who is already familiar with insect protein, what animal is this a natural diet for, and really who would be the early adopters here. Chickens are also not vegetarians, similar to dogs and cats, especially cats. But when you do see chicken in a store sometimes that says fed off of a vegetarian diet, that basically means that it is a corded soy-based diet. So that was the exact same approach that we had where, you know, trying to really focus on what is the natural diet for the bird. Again, clearly you would see a chicken scratching through grass and dirt, eating grubs and really replacing what would be other traditional proteins used in chicken feed. Another one is also fish meal where... I mean, I'm sure a chicken would eat a fish if it was presented the opportunity, but typically you would not see a chicken going for, you know, a minnow in a stream. And then there is also the downside that if you actually have too high of an inclusion rate of fish meal in your chicken feed, it can actually pass a fishy flavor uh, along into the egg, which I have never experienced, but does not sound pleasant. It's definitely something with formulation within the industry that we want to keep an eye on because the last thing consumers want are... Uh fishy tasting eggs or smelling eggs because the odor can pass along as well. Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah, um, absolutely. Maybe this is silly, but it, it just dawned on me. Now, I have seen some of these products, but I'm, I'm curious, as we're talking about insects and grubs, if a pet, a chicken pet owner <laughs> opens up one of these products, are they going to see little wiggly grubs? Or what is the the process behind that? And are you interested in, in maybe different types of formats and things like that? So I'm just curious, can you paint the picture of what this actually looks like? Yeah, so all of our products that we currently sell, there we do not sell live grubs. Uh, we have actually considered selling live grubs and whether that is for chickens to encourage a scratching that you can throw a handful on the ground, you know, as they start to burrow into the grass, the chicken will scratch through for them or even for reptile feed. But as of right now, our product lines are really broken up into three categories. One is just on the supplement side that I'm happy to get into, but the other two is kind of a snack or a treat line and then a fully formulated feed. So the snack or treat line is what we call whole dried grubs. Uh, so it is the form factor of the grub itself. It has gone through a drying process to create a more shelf-stable product. It still preserves the proteins in there. And the analogy I like to use is that the milk bone equivalent for your chickens. A lot of people use it to interact with them, to get them in and out of the coop and give them a handful here and there, let the kids interact with the birds. And then the fully formulated feed has all of the nutrients that the chicken needs. So that's what they will eat on a daily basis. And that uses a defatted insect meal as the main protein source for that feed. So really the form factor is still there for the snap line. But it's really a, it looks similar to any other protein powder that's really incorporated into the actual chicken feed itself. When I first got involved with poultry, the only place that you could find anything for chickens was at a farm feed store. And now I walk into PetSmart and Petco and Walmart and I go on Chewy and there's stuff for chickens in all of these locations, which is fantastic to see. Um, but clearly people are People view these animals, they might start off with, I want these backyard chickens for their eggs, but then they very quickly weasel their way into our hearts and we learn that they have little personalities and they're very interactive and they're fun to, to watch and hang out with. And before you know it, they all have names and they're, they're your pets. And there's clearly been a demand for people to 
have these premium pet products since they are now on the store shelves in these pet retail stores. But how hard has it been for you to permeate within the pet industry and kind of veer from agriculture to pet? Yeah. So I guess a a little, a very quick background on kind of how we found the uh, pet chicken space. So when we first got interested in the insect industry, we were you know, fascinated by the concept, but really wanted to figure out what we actually can use this insect protein for. Uh, I will say we actually originally made a, a burger patty out of it and considered human consumption, uh, which I'll be honest, it didn't taste that great, but I think a chef could have spiced it up a bit. But really from there, we decided to look into the animal or livestock industry as kind of the earlier adopters in Western society. We originally called large-scale poultry farms, large-scale aquaculture farms, and explained the process to them. And I think of the 50 we called, 49 said, we love the concept, we love the idea, we'd be happy to purchase some, we just need 50 metric tons a week to keep up with our production. And this is when we were growing bugs in a greenhouse in my parents' backyard. Really, that is where we had to hit pause and think, what is a market that we can really break into and that we can sell smaller volumes at a higher price per pound? And ultimately, that's how we found the pet chicken market. And I would say the benefit of the stars aligning was as we were getting into that industry, the popularity of it really started to grow. So while there definitely was competition uh, when we first started entering that market back in like 2016, 2017, it was nothing like where it is today, where you really just had your kind of large, more commercially baseline feed, still corn and soy based, but no one had really pushed into the premium brand for pet chickens. So it wasn't too difficult to break into it in the sense that we got in very early and grew with the industry itself. But I do think one thing that we really prided ourselves on and actually helped push the industry forward was on the marketing and branding side. Before we really pushed into the CPG side of the industry, we were seeing a lot of these insect producers try and sell their product labeling it as either something maggot related or larva related. And we just sat there, we're like, that is the most repulsive term you could think of. Like, how do you expect to get early adopters with this? The name Grubbly Farms really came from how do we create a friendly sounding name that introduces people into this alternative protein? And then from there, really highlight, educate them on the actual benefits, not only for the animal itself, but also for the planet. So luckily for us, it wasn't too difficult to scale into it, but I will say as the industry grows and as more of these larger, what would be classified as like traditional pet stores start breaking into the poultry market, I think it just offers additional opportunities for us to get into brick and mortar stores. But I think a lot of these companies really noticed the market growth and the uh, potential just because now pet chickens, you know, we estimated at a multi-billion dollar year industry in the U.S. alone. So I I think a lot of these larger players have started to notice that. Pet chickens are the third most popular pet behind dogs and cats. So it's definitely, definitely taking off. Now, right now, when I look back and reflect on kind of the path that the dog and cat uh, pet trends in the pet industry has taken for them, because I think we can use that as a model for where poultry will go. When you look back, dogs and cats historically were given like the table scraps. And then we moved towards getting a complete and balanced formulated feed. And now we have pet consumers who want their 
feed formulated by either board certified veterinary nutritionists, PhD nutritionists. They want an expert who knows about the nutrition that their animals want or not want, but need to thrive and live long, happy, healthy lives. Do you foresee that being a trend for poultry? I mean, right now people are happy to toss out scratch grain and the dried mealworms and black soldier fly larvae or the grubs for their pet chickens. But do you see demand increasing in the future for formulators who are well-versed in poultry nutrition to increase? 100%. When we're speaking to either investors or customers, we kind of use the analogy that you know, 20 years ago, as you said, when people started to become more conscious of the ingredients they're feeding to their dogs or cats, Blue Buffalo was one of the first companies to launch using higher quality ingredients. And you now have your human grade fresh dog food that can cost hundreds of dollars a month to feed your dog. But as dogs and cats have almost moved from pets into the children aspect of the family, chickens have moved from livestock to pets. And we are seeing that similar trend where it basically opens the opportunity for some of these more premium brands that have the ability to buy higher quality ingredients, really focusing on the health of the bird and what the customer is looking for. So that is the position that we're really taking with the industry. Uh, we know we are a premium brand, and part of that does come down to as the insect industry continues to evolve, as these larger production facilities are built out both in the U.S. and around the world, it will become more efficient. It will become more optimized. And prices will drop on the grub protein. Uh, but until we get to that point, the premium brand is really how you break into the market. I also, the analogy almost to Tesla is they started with the Tesla Roadster, which was a very high-end model. And then slowly as they became more efficient in production, they eventually offered, what was it, this, the $35,000 version. I, I forget over the name of it. But that's the process that kind of a lot of these insect producers are, are building toward, where they do want to actually get to the point where they can use insect protein in commercial livestock feed, where the birds would still be living a healthier life, even if they're going toward meat production. Uh, but you still need to compete with traditional proteins, which I will say, unfortunately, farmers operate on a very slim margin. So luckily, there is that trend of free range ethically sourced that is continuing to grow but that is still a very small portion of overall livestock production. I think that's such an exciting trajectory, though, that one day we will be able to feed like that for all birds everywhere. <laughs> and the other thing on just why I see this potentially being even more accelerated in what um, your, your customers are wanting is because, yes, they love their birds, but their birds are also producing things that are being consumed by their family members. So they really are part of the family in, in that capacity. And so when you put that element as, you know, you're feeding that product to your family, they're going to want good quality things to feed them so that they keep the entire family healthy. So I think that's almost like, potentially an accelerator for people wanting that priority of a very good premium product. Yeah, 100% agree with you. Uh, we are, we're pretty picky about the ingredients we put in our products. We do go through, uh, work with formulists. So just to be very clear, neither Patrick or myself are nutritionists. We are not the ones putting together the formula. We work with the experts to make sure that uh, we can trust that. But just as an example, we are like the insect producers we work with, 
We only work with producers that grow their grubs to EU's pet food standard, which actually has a higher pet food standard than the U.S. So the grubs are limited to being raised off of pre-consumer food waste with fruits, grains, and vegetables. And the reason that is important, again, is because of the quality of the ingredients in the chicken feed gets passed along to the eggs. But one of the actual benefits of the black soldier fly is it's considered the piranha of the insect world. So it can eat a very wide variety of uh, waste streams, which, again, is both good and bad in the sense on the recycling side, there's a lot of opportunity there. But if you're catering toward pets, we won't really want to focus on high quality ingredients. And with that, it's grunts grown on high quality ingredients as well. From like the formulation aspect, this is super seeing the trend of poultry transitioning into pets is super exciting for me because I I went to school to study poultry science. My my PhD in nutrition, I focused heavily on chickens and using poultry as a model. And I worked in the agricultural industry for a very short period of time because I found I I truly love these birds. Like I I love chickens, turkeys, ducks. I love them all. And Working in the agricultural industry was really hard to do when you really love the animals, because as much as we try to maximize welfare and treat these animals well, at the end of the day, they are the product that's being produced. That's what really triggered my shift to pursue a career in the pet industry. And a part of me was a little heartbroken that I wasn't going to get to continue to work with chickens, which is really what drove me to pursue the degree that I I got. And suddenly, like poof, like magic, chickens are now entering this space. And so I am now in the position where I have the opportunity to use everything I went to school for to formulate products to help people's pets, their pet chickens that they love as much as I love my pet chickens live longer, healthier, happier lives. I love seeing these small businesses um, really flourish to provide products for pet chickens instead of pet chickens essentially having to make do with the streams that are shot off from industry, which are going to be your starter grower for chicks and then layer feeds. It's really an exciting time to be someone who really likes chickens. Yeah, no, I I would agree with you. And it I will say it is a weird uh, dichotomy kind of from pet chickens to livestock. One of the odder things that we ran into was actually one of the first chicken events that we went to. It was a chicken show. It was kind of an early introduction to us, but we met up with a bunch of people for dinner afterwards and a lot of people ordered chicken of some sort, you know, chicken sandwich, wings. And we asked them, do you ever consider the, the problem of having pet chickens, but also eating it? And they, it was a trend that everyone said, hashtag not my chicken. And we laughed about it, but there is always going to be that balancing act. It's similar with fish. You can have your goldfish, but you can still eat your tilapia or trout as well. But if anything, I do think familiarizing people more with chickens or any kind of more livestock or farm animal, it really is going to only help benefit on the ethical treatment of animals in the long run, because a lot of people, when they think of pork or beef, they don't think of the animals. They think of the packaging in a grocery store. And I do think it is beneficial in connecting this to the actual animal itself. We're in a weird balancing act as pet chickens have become more popular, but I do think it's only going to be beneficial for the long run. And I would say like a shout out as an example to White Oak Pastures. 
If you're familiar with them in South Georgia, they are one of the original farms that really moved away from your commercial farming aspect to use rotational fields. And we actually worked with them very early on on looking at setting up their own soldier fly facility to help feed their chickens. So there is a way to ethically raise animals for meat where the animal still has a great life, but also still provides the nutrition that humans need to survive. So I think while we're in kind of a weird spot now, I do think it's moving in the right direction. Megan had actually brought up in one of our conversations that we had yesterday, whether this trend of people having pet chickens would impact like how they wanted to feed their other animals. Like if you have pet chickens, do you want to turn around and feed your dog chicken? Do do you want to eat chicken and how that's going to impact or potentially impact the dog and cat pet industry as well? Yeah. And I think that also opens up future opportunities for us or other people in the industry where, you know, I will say our end goal at Grubly is to become an omni pet company in the sense that we ideally do want to cater toward a wide variety of pets. And whether that is, you know, chicken, exotic animals or reptiles, fish, or your traditional pets with dogs and cats, there is that health benefit that this insect protein offers because insects are an animal. So there, there's the difference between animal proteins, plant versus plant proteins. But I think a lot of people also underestimate the impact that pets have on the environment and pets specifically being uh, traditional pets with dogs and cats, where one statistic that I actually initially did not believe when I first heard it was that U.S. dogs and cats eat 25% of the meat consumed in the United States every year. And that just sounds astronomical until you do realize, you know, there's 50 million households with dogs, like 30 to 40 million with cats. 10 to 15 million with chickens and it starts to add up. So I, if it does change the behavior on what we're feeding our traditional pets, again, I view that as a positive in the sense that if we started shifting over to using more insect protein or more sustainable proteins, it either would cut down on uh, basically the general livestock needs uh, for meat production, or it would just allow that meat to be used toward other human consumption which is just one of the growing topics just as we continue to talk about a growing population and what food demand is going to look like over the next couple of decades. So I think our industry is fascinating (laughs) because it's ever evolving and growing along with just population, like the human world. And, And so I think this is a really neat call to, one, pet parents to communicate with these companies to know what is the priority like what do they find that's valuable because I I really do believe the industry wants to support pets but also the pet parents too so I think this is a a call to, to constantly be looking and listening and communicating just across the board uh, because there's so much that is just changing and hopefully every I know change can be scary but it can also be super exciting so I'm very excited by what you're doing Sean and it just makes me constantly more excited about our industry Um, but as we're coming to the end uh, Mary is there like a, a final question that you wanted to ask or anything that we've left out one of the problems that I I think a lot of poultry owners run into is the fact that their regular veterinarian they typically take their dog and cat to is not comfortable or willing to see chickens 
all of the poultry vets, at least the vast majority that I know of, are poultry vets for the larger industry. So they're not seeing backyard flocks either. Avian vets are focused towards parrots. So that really doesn't leave a, a veterinarian to prescribe meds or help treat illness for chickens. It's a huge gap, I think, in the, the veterinary space as we see more and more people get pet chickens or turkeys or ducks. And I think the go-to for most owners is going to be to try and treat using nutraceutical properties and supplements and try and prevent illness in the first place. Do you see there being a a relatively large opportunity there to develop more products targeted towards either helping to prevent disease or or treat some of the signs of disease to, to act as supportive care to try and get birds through some of these health challenges? Yes, I, I do think there's a very large opportunity both on like our own product development, but as you said, even within the veterinary space for other companies and industries to expand and look into that. Uh, so like as an example, we do have water-soluble supplements that we launched recently. One are electrolytes and then also pre and probiotics. And then one thing we're also working on right now is actually an immune booster pellet. So I do believe you're correct that if a chicken does get sick, a lot of the times it is entirely on the owner versus if your dog gets sick, you typically would take them to the vet. So I do think another interesting opportunity around that also just comes from providing the information. Now, again, I, I'm not a vet. I'm not a nutritionist. We try to work with experts in the industry, but we have heard from our customer base that uh, we have a pretty extensive blog on our website that talks about all things chickens. And a lot of it does come down to certain illnesses that you can see, or if your chicken has an impacted crop, we try to dig up as much information that we can find in the ecosystem to then consolidate it and provide it back to you on saying, you know, here's a certain method that works that you can try. And actually, Patrick, uh, my co-founder, ended up uh, using one of the methods on our blog uh, that helped save one of his chickens. So I think there's a lot to evolve around that, both for ourselves and the industry as a whole. But I do think it's just providing the information that people need. And that is both for kind of the more technical side of things. But even as new people get into owning pet chickens, a lot of them don't know the basics. And again, I would always say, please do your research before getting any type of animal. But we've even had customers reach out, freaking out, saying, my chickens are losing all their feathers, like just not knowing what the molting process is like. I think it's it's a wide range of information that we're also trying to help provide to the industry, both on kind of the basics, but also on the more extreme end around illnesses or disease. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for what you do for this industry. I can only see opportunities for growth. If you need Mary to take some of those calls, just let us know. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm always happy. Uh, I have all of this chicken knowledge just floating around waiting for the right question. Megan knows. She's, yes. She's love- had the unfortunate opportunity of asking the wrong question that sparks like a bit of a tangent. Yes, I we have actually at BSM, I'm not the only chicken person, surprisingly. We also have uh, Chuck also is a poultry, we went to school for poultry nutrition. That's so what he got his PhD in as well. So there's more of us out there than one would imagine. But some of our veterinarians have a backyard poultry of their own. So we have conversations about poultry quite often, actually. <laughs> I love it's it so much. So frequent awesome. topic of conversation. 
But thank you so much, Sean, for making time for us today. This was a super fun conversation to have. Yeah, Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was great speaking with you both. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Industry Podcast, a BSM Partners production with editing by Cliff Duvenois. Thank you to the podcast team, Dr. Megan Sprinkle, Dr. Mary Cope, Dr. Stephanie Clark, and Michael Johnson. If you want to learn more about our family here at BSM Partners, please visit our website at bsmpartners.net. And please make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, tell a friend, and find us here next time.